Hey everybody, Andrew Holacek here. Um, I am uh, particularly excited about our guests for this particular podcast. A really interesting set of characters um, with an even more interesting project that they're working on. So I will do an abbreviated introduction to both of them. The extended full bios are obviously posted on our site. Um, and then we're just going to jump right in because there's so much really compelling, provocative material to talk about. So um, Courtney, Sheehan, Courtney Sheehan is the director, co-director of this project. I should say the director and co-producer of this project that we're going to be talking about at length. And she's a dream tech researcher, business strategist, and film consultant based in L.A. And her partner in this project is Lori Poliski. Um, she is a filmmaker and neuroscience researcher working at the intersection of science and film. And I wanted to just say when, when I was sent the pitch deck to their project, which we're going to obviously talk about in some detail, I was really struck by the audience interests. And I wanted to just share this with you all because it'll give you some idea of the uh, scope of what they're doing here, the originality you know, the breadth of the topics that they're covering. And so the audience interest for the projects that the main project that they're working on includes dreams, sci-fi, tech, futurism, neuroscience, artificial intelligence, mindfulness, meditation, biohacking, healing, therapy, and art. And that's just amazing. So um, welcome so much to both of you. Thank you for taking time out of your busy lives to chat with us for a little bit. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, really excited to be here. Terrific. And so the first thing we have to do, of course, there's so much to talk about. The first thing we have to do is um, chat about this amazing project altogether. So tell us what it is that you're working on, and then we're going to get into some of the nitty gritty here, because when I went through this, I was really impressed. Um, there's just so many really compelling topics to uh, dive into. So uh, maybe, Courtney, let's start. Just give us an overview of, of what this project is altogether, and then let's just get into the thick of it and, and tease it apart a little bit. Sure, yeah. I'm actually going to hand it off to Lori to start with the what it is. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, this is fine. Is this your first, is this the first three, three-way interview that's been on yes. the podcast yet? Yeah, so you're, you're the inaugural um, three-part podcast here, so absolutely. That is very exciting. Uh, it's an honor. Um, a little bit more about the project. Yeah, thank you so much for that intro. Um, we're calling the project Anybody's Dream. And it's a media project about the emergent field of dream technology. And I say project broadly because we're simultaneously developing a TV series as well as a podcast. Um, we started filming at the beginning of this year at CES, the annual consumer tech trade show that's in Las Vegas. And we were there particularly interested in following a startup that was showcasing their lucid dreaming headband, which uh, we should talk more in detail about later. Um, but since then have traveled to Europe to film with Martin Dressler's lab, uh, where they're using EEG, fMRI, and VR in a variety of studies. Um, and it was really after these two um, filming events that COVID hit. We were at the end of January and soon production restrictions were in place and we started channeling our momentum and our research into the development of a podcast. So really with the uptick in conversation around dreams during quarantine and major news outlets starting to publish articles like, 
why am I having such weird dreams right now? It's just a really self-reflexive and insular time. And we're really excited to see people kind of paying more attention to their dreams. And we think it's a really apt time for this project because we're interested in kind of harnessing this energy and broadening the conversation out from some of these articles, which are a little bit more based in dream interpretation and psychoanalysis and are trying to open it up into some of the topics that you've already identified and provide additional perspectives from neuroscientists, technologists, and other cultural perspectives. So, so, so tell us a little bit more about um, the cast of characters. I mean, you've got really quite an, an eclectic group of thinkers, innovators, shamans, mystics, and the like. So tell us a little bit about the people that you're actually working with. Yeah, Courtney, do you want to tell us a little bit more about our cast of characters? Sure. So, um, you know, one of the conversations that we've been having is with Adam Horowitz, who's a member of the MIT Media Lab in the Fluid Interfaces group, which has a group of dream engineers. So they are actually creating a variety of prototypes that interact directly with dreams. And Adam worked really closely on the creation of this hypnagogic device called Dormio that allows you to program what you want to think about in hypnagogia. And we've just had the opportunity to dive deep with him about this device and his process of designing it and what the sort of reception and responses have been like and the potential applications to it. And one thing that's really exciting is how interdisciplinary his approach is and the lab's approaches to this work. Like they very much recognize the validity and the role of, um, you know, is things like meditation in uh, how, how to do dream science. So, you know, when we talk about the sort of the intersection of the hard, you know, cognitive neurosciences and a lot of the work that, that you write on, Andrew Moore, in Buddhism and beyond, like that's, that's one of the things that we are most excited about when we're exploring what these devices could mean for the future of our dreams. So that's one example. And then perhaps Lori can talk more about the, uh, the lucid dream device that we filmed with in Vegas and in the Netherlands. Yeah, totally. Um, so yeah, so we, we've been filming with this startup called iBand Plus. Mm-hmm. Um, they're a lucid dream headband company. Um, they've been around, I mean, really, they, they started raising capital on crowdfunding as early as 2016, potentially earlier. Um, and they've raised over $2 million in the creation of this headband. Wow. Um, yeah, it's quite, quite amazing and, and really exemplary, exemplary of the demand uh, that people are seeking a device like this. And um, so we filmed with them in CES this last January where they were showing their prototype. And then we followed them to the Netherlands where we saw like their headquarters and some of the work that they're doing there uh, with the university to kind of test and develop their algorithm. And in fact, Courtney and I each spent a night sleeping in their lab, hooked up to a clinical EEG as well as their lucid dream headband to help them uh, validate their algorithms and, and provide additional data points for the machine learning that they're developing. And 
unfortunately, neither of us have gotten to try the lucid dreaming component to the device, but I should talk a little bit about how it essentially works. Uh, yeah, totally. So it can track your sleep stages and mm -hmm. can tell when you're entering REM. So, so basically through EEG, right? Yeah, through actually right anyway. two electrodes. Uh-huh. Uh, pretty impressive uh, that are, that are sitting. It's a little tiny device, quite discreet, that sits on your forehead. Uh-huh. And it can track when you enter REM. And then it delivers light and sound cues to encourage lucidity. Um, we, I, I don't have any personal comments on whether or not it works because we weren't able to try that component of the device out yet. We were simply providing some baseline data. But where they're at in their process is they're currently um, manufacturing the devices for the first round to be sent out to their crowdfunding backers. So awesome. I guess the answer will be out in the public pretty shortly. Yeah, well, I want to throw into the mix that I, I actually tried the, the, the very first, I mean, um, kind of prototype of this, of course, the Stephen LaBerge inaugurated decades ago that you, I'm sure you both know of is a museum piece, but I got one called the uh -huh. Nova Dreamer. And I, I've had really good luck with this entity. And so for, for listeners, tell them a little bit more about how this stuff works, because I think this is one of the really exciting undercurrents uh, of what's happening in the dream science, um, and especially lucid dreaming research these days, are, are the transcranial stimulators, these types of gadgets that, you know, some of the purists, I have to say, and I come a little bit from that um, tradition, being a student of the, of the Tibetan Buddhist gig, uh, there is a little bit of, you know, eyebrow raising with these sorts of things. But from my perspective, hey, if it works, I'll use it. And, it, mm. you know, saying a little bit more about how these babies work, I think is really helpful to our audience because um, it really just takes advantage of the really seminal contributions of the West and this kind of neurophenomenology, you know, that, that whenever you have a particular um, phenomenological experience, in this case, the dream, there are neurological markers. There are ways that they can gauge that you're doing it, whether, whether it's through, obviously, probably most readily through things like EEG, and the like, and then taking advantage of that sweet spot as a way to then um, initiate lucidity. So can you say a little bit more to our, to our audience about um, how these things uh, work or anything in addition to add? Have you had a chance to try some of the other kind of generation um, gadgets around these sort of uh, lucid dream induction devices? So many of them are so hard to get a hold of now. So, you know, a story we've encountered again and again are the various devices that have been released in the years following the Nova Dreamer um, and then, you know, how they go off the market, so to speak, and, and become harder to find. Um, you know, we hear from the researchers that the um, veracity of, of data and flexibility of programming in the Hypnodyne ZMAX is quite uh -huh. useful. So, of course, a lot of the university labs are using this for a range of sleep and dream research purposes and just the extent and the range of um, data that is available and, you know, to be programmed as well uh, is makes that device a really useful tool for research. I think Lori uh, has, has a cool personal story around some of the 
transcranial stimulation research because she actually uh, met Ursula Voss not long after the 2014 study was published. And, you know, we've been tracking the uh, subsequent conversation and attempts to replicate that, that study since then. So Laura can <clears throat> say more on that. Yeah, I mean, I almost feel the urge to back up a little bit and just talk a little bit broadly about, you know, we can measure so many things coming off the body. We can track eye movements. We can get biometric data, your heart rate and your skin, your galvanic skin response. Mm -hmm. um, we can track all of these things that can tell us so much about what our body is doing and what state it's in. Um, that sometimes like, especially with EEG, with all of these wires and uh, it looks like it could be out of a sci-fi movie and there's questions about like, what exactly are these devices doing? And uh, am I going to be, should I be scared of this or should I lean into this or kind of how should I relate to this? And um, I think we've, we've seen such a range of technologies that are out there. And, and Courtney um, is bringing up uh, Ursula Voss, who, who published a paper with Ansgar Klimke in 2014. I think I have that year right. Um, and they used uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is actually stimulating the brain uh, using magnetic waves, uh, which, is, which looks very radically different than something like EEG, which is a non-invasive monitor of your brain response. You could think about it like talking into a microphone. Um, you know, you're not, nothing is coming to you from the wires. It's simply monitoring what's coming out of your brain activity. Um, so those, those two things I'd, I'd like to like create a difference between, you know, one is a monitoring of, of uh, what, what your biology, what your biology is doing. And one is like a direct influence on what that biology is. And both raise interesting questions about, you know, uh, how much uh, dreams can and can't be controlled, uh, which, what is the intention behind these devices, um, what might be lost or gained by trying to seek that control. I mean, the very similar questions to how we are learning to even seek lucidity in the first place. No kidding, uh, yeah. And so this really harks at the really larger issue of, of consciousness hacking altogether, um, dream hacking, sleep hacking, and that sort of thing. And, and so where do you see this going? I mean, if, if you had to put your uh, hands on a crystal ball here, are, <laughs> are you guys really excited with what you're saying in, in the research? Because I know Ursula's boss, her paper was really um, radical, somewhat controversial, yes, and groundbreaking in a lot of ways. Um, and you know, this leads to a, a host of issues that we can explore, like the ethics behind this sort of thing, the kind of the shadow elements behind this. But maybe um, talk a little bit more about, you know, the notion of consciousness hacking in general and, and uh, dream hacking in particular. I mean, have you had where are you are landing on that? You know, this is really why we are making this project that is a, inherently a creative and artistic one to explore these ideas because, you know, when it comes to that crystal ball and projections and predictions about the future and potential concerns and trepidations about, you know, what happens when 
these devices are really turned robustly into products, you know, and, and what happens when uh, things like dream control and on-demand dream experiences become like capitalist enterprise. Uh, that's why we want to engage with this really rich set of questions through art in order to kind of imagine the future and the types of questions that uh, various people would be motivated to ask from a, you know, a variety of perspectives about why dreams matter and like what the stakes really are. We're really pulling from the mode of speculative fiction in this work. We're really in, inspired by the work of Octavia Butler, you know, one of the canonical sci-fi writers whose work is really being returned to right now because she anticipated in stunning and sometimes terrifying detail a lot of the changes that are happening in our environment and in our economies and our social structures. Um, she really called it. And so that's kind of why we want to pull together fiction and nonfiction in the projects that we're putting out there. We're interviewing scientists and technologists about the devices that they're making and lucid dreamers about why they are using these devices. But we're also incorporating fiction that speculates about the near future when some of these uh, you know, devices will be more widespread or more um, easily accessible and all the different kind of capital applications for them as well. Like even things like uh, tracking the early days of development of direct dream advertising. So we're, we're trying to get ahead a lot of, uh, of a lot of this in a um, contemplative way by raising questions through the modes of storytelling that resonate with people most and originate in our dreams. Yeah, and you know what's really interesting about this, and, and it, it, it took me several times to go through your pitch deck because it, it's almost, it, it, you know, it's indicative of the spirit that I'm gleaning from you guys all together that um, this kind of liminal, this liminality that is infused through what you're doing, that it's really hard to pigeonhole exactly what it is that you guys are doing. And, and that's actually quite refreshing. I mean, part of my left brain mind gets a little bit um, frustrated with it because it is a little bit all over the map, but so are dreams, right? I mean, dreams are all over the map. And so you, you are kind of expressing in your work and the cast of characters that I still want to continue going through, just the, the wide range of the dream experience itself its connection to liminal states that you really can't land in um, kind of an absolute uh, kind of dominating bandwidth in any one of these arenas that you're exploring and that somehow through the whole thing you're creating this kind of pointillistic painting or this this image that will I mean who knows what it's going to turn out to but um, I, I find it somewhat interesting to even try to wrap your mind around it. And so therefore, I think what you're doing is just rock'em, sock'em, cool. And so you're also introducing into the arena a host of neologisms, a bunch of new terms that I'm sure many people are not familiar with. Like you mentioned, for instance, dream advertising. Mm -hmm. um, or, or I know when I went through your pitch deck and we can talk about um, this a little bit more detail, neuromarketing. So is this a, a reasonable place to talk a little bit about that since you already threw that out into the open? I mean, what an interesting notion um, these terms actually are. Absolutely. I mean, I can, I can speak directly to this um, concept of neuromarketing, which is a whole field that's developed around 
yeah, what we can measure using neuroscientific tools and how those tools can be applied to marketing purposes. So there are companies like Nielsen, uh, a major data and data company who has a startup that they bought called uh, NeuroFocus, I believe. And they're using things like EEG to understand how the brain is responding to advertisements so that they can, for example, find what is most appealing about a Coca-Cola ad and uh, make sure that those are the those are the seconds in the advertisement that they are playing up. Or if they're going to make an edit to that commercial, what seconds do they need to keep in based on how your brain is responding to that commercial? In the same, in the same way and in another application, um, having, have, using neuromarketing to have a participant look at a mock shelf in a store and track their eye movements to see mm. what, uh, what product their eyes go to first. Uh, to to then make assumptions about how to change their packaging to make it more appealing to the brain. I mean, this this stuff is happening now. What we're curious about is what happens when these questions start to get applied to the next frontier, which we believe are our dreams. Yeah, it's interesting. It also makes me think back on the old subliminal marketing strategies. I mean, there you, you could actually probably talk about that as a type of neural marketing as well. But um, so, so along these lines, um, branding and dreams, dream branding for products and, and the like, uh, say a little bit more about that. I mean, this, is, this stuff is so out on the edge that I'm sure um, the vast majority of us listening to this are going like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, you know, when Adam Horowitz uh, talks about part of the backstory of Dormio, and this is in his thesis, which is on his website, his master's thesis for MIT, if anybody would like to read it about Dormio, it's, it's a very excellent piece of writing. He talks about how he was approached by multiple corporations interested in using the technology to create subconscious emotional ties to products in people's dreams. And, you know, there was even a particular marketing stunt proposed around this. So, I mean, in, in some ways, it's not the most interesting question in so far as, like you're saying, Andrew, it's a fine line what you can even define as dream advertising, because in fact, our dreams are already influenced by subconscious emotional ties to products that are constantly being bombarded at us in all kinds of ways. I'm sure everybody listening to this, if they think hard enough, can remember one or more instances of, you know, things showing up in their dreams. That's like, all right, that's because that got put in front of my face, you know? And then of course, there's all the unconscious things that we can't detect there. Um, And then, you know, in terms of even the near future of this with more literal applications of dream advertising, it's also Honestly, like I, I feel like it's it's an inevitability. Like it is like the logic of capitalism to continue to mm-hmm. try to incur upon every last precious space in the cognitive real estate for advertising. So if they can push past the boundary of wake into sleep, it's going to try to happen. And that's why we want to illuminate, you know, what what the stakes are and what the questions are and and to the best of our abilities, who's who's starting to uh, do that work on the ground. Um, And in terms of a lot of the technological and scientific research uh, undergirding some of those advancements, you know, we see a link between the, this kind of very nascent stage we're in with dream recording 
um, which is the foundation for dream writing in that sense. And so insert right off the bat, um, dream recording, this is different from what most people think of as dream recording. So talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, so there is a proof of concept, like very rough, very early version of very early. recording dreams using neural imaging and neural decoding, you know, by a Japanese lab several years ago. And, you know, that particular lab isn't even continuing that line of research because dreams are so hard, so hard to do that it's like, okay, let's, if we're going to continue to try to capture what uh, particular cortex is or what's happening in the brain, like maybe let's start with thought in waking, you know, waking life. But, um, you know, that some of what I've heard is that it's a matter of finding invasive uh, technologies that are non-damaging to aid this process. So in other words, the tech kind of has to catch up with the science as the science needs to also continue to, um, you know, gain sophistication in, on the brain imaging level. But um, the the beginnings are are there. And optogenetics are is another area that there's been some preliminary research around, you know, essentially uh, activating and therefore controlling neuronal activity using uh, light and using kind of um, protein prepped uh, neurons. I mean, that's really amazing. And one of the things that strikes me immediately, and in fact, the, the nomenclature reveals it was when you mentioned this idea of invasive technologies. Mm -hmm. I think one of the biggest um, I don't know that what what raised uh, uh, some concern with me around this material altogether. It, it's really this notion of one of the most um, you could say final refuges, a, a location of refuge for personal identity, for sanctuary, for ultimate intimacy and privacy, is in fact the the sanctuary of the dreaming mind. I mean, can you think of anything more intimate and personal than that? And so you know, the, the notion of having that mind space somehow violated by these technologies, uh, I think invasive technology is probably not a hyperbolic term in this regard. You know, how open um, will people be to uh, this type of uh, hacking and, you know, making their innermost dimensions of, of uh, experience available to the public domain, so to speak. I mean, so uh, when you think about this, where do you land with all that yourself? I mean, are you comfortable with these own, in your own experience with these types of uh, potential technologies? I mean, I think it's a, it's a complicated answer. And I think the cop-out is to say, it doesn't matter, it's happening. And so what we're trying to do is get out in front of it to ask the questions that are concerning us. Um, I personally, uh, I am conflicted because on the one hand, I find dreams to be a lifelong exploration and incredibly personally fulfilling and have, have been almost a trusted friend throughout my life. Uh, and things like spending time with my deceased grandmother in yeah. my dreams, you know, and, and having moments that are just unachievable in waking life are amazing. If there was a technology that could provide the ability to call up at will uh, any of my deceased loved ones to spend time with in, an, in a way that I could actually 
feel like they were with me. I mean, that is incredibly enticing. On the other hand, I think the questions that we're trying to raise are, who's creating that device? What are their intentions? Who's owning the data? Yeah. Uh, where is that leading? And what, you know, um, where is this all headed? And is it yeah. as innocent as spending time with my grandmother? Or right. Right. What, 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 what ends up being the cost of this exploration? And, um, you know, both of us are approaching this project because we have deep relationships with our dream lives. Well, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, because it's like then are they, in fact, um, going to kidnap your lifelong friend, right? Right. You know, I mean, really, at what point do they cross that threshold? And when you say, let me ask you both this, when you say it's heading in this direction um, regardless, how does that tie into uh, permission, you know, uh, consensual hacking, so to speak? I well, mean, think about all the terms and conditions you've agreed to without reading. Think about all the data about your life and your behavior yeah. and your transaction that is out there owned by somebody else, used by somebody else. You have no idea about the who or the what. You know, I think it's already happening. When I, when I check those terms and conditions boxes because I need to hurry up and get through a transaction, I do feel like I'm betraying myself a little bit. And I do think that, you know, it's, it's not a moot question of having a protective barrier around dreams, but it is a more complicated question. And I think your own work uh, discusses this a lot, Andrew, in terms of consciousness being a continuum. And if we do kind of create a bucket and put dreams in it and another bucket and put waking life in it and pretend that, you know, that is a very concrete uh, distinction between the right. two, then we're not really doing service to our, you know, spectrum of forms of consciousness that we do occupy throughout the day and night in, in different ways. And so, you know, any question that you ask about how could somebody try to do that to my dreams, you should right. also be asking about your waking life. And they're already doing all of those things now. And you are not in conscious control of all the effects they're having on your, you know, neurobiology or biology or decisions, your psychology or emotional well-being, et cetera. You can think you are in charge. But the control is always an illusion, right? I mean, this goes back to some of the most basic Buddhist principles. So that's another reason why we think it's important to take a hybrid approach across genres of fiction and nonfiction to show how blurry that line is all the time and treat yeah, yeah. people to embrace that with more of an open mind. 